Section 21 of The Age of Elizabeth by Mandel Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 6, Chapter 3, Reaction Against Spain. Philip's schemes were destined to similar failure in France. We have seen how entirely the power of the League had won the day at the beginning of 1588. Henry III was obliged to summon the estates at Blois and to submit to many limitations upon the royal power. War was to be resumed against Henry of Navarre. The king found himself merely a tool in the hands of the Duke of Guise and his party. This position was intolerable to him as a similar position had been intolerable to his mother Catherine when the Huguenot, Coligny, was endeavoring to mold the policy of the French monarchy. Henry resolved, as his mother had done, to free himself of his dangerous rival by assassination. On December 23, 1588, Guise was summoned to the king's chamber and was murdered on entering it by some of the king's bodyguard, while the king awaited the accomplishment of the deed. Great was the fury of the people. Paris took the first step and refused any longer to recognize a king who had broken his word to the harm of the Catholic faith. All the great towns of France followed the example of the capital, and the Duke of Mayence, brother of the murdered Guise, placed himself at the head of the Confederates. Open war broke out between the king and the League. Henry III by himself would have been powerless against this opposition, but Henry of Navarre, with his small army of well-trained soldiers, marched to his aid. Tolerance to the Huguenots was again proclaimed by the king. The Catholic royalists slowly gathered round him, and the contest lay between the principles of monarchy and tolerance on the one side and the exclusive principle of Catholicism on the other. In July 1589, Henry III found himself strong enough to lay siege to Paris. The League trusted to assistance from the Duke of Parma in the Netherlands, for Philip's cause was so closely allied with it that the subjugation of the Netherlands was now secondary to the success of his scheme in France. But the assassination of Guise was to produce its fruits. A fanatical Dominican priest, Jacques Clément, was so moved by a papal admonition denouncing Henry III that he decided it was no sin for a priest to kill a tyrant. On August 2nd, 1589, he obtained an interview with the king and stabbed him. The question of the succession to the French throne was now a matter of supreme importance. The heir presumptive was the Huguenot, Henry of Navarre. Against him was brought forward the candidate of the League, the Cardinal of Bourbon. If it was worth Philip's while to interfere before in French affairs to gain influence for Spain, it was now a matter of vital importance for him to prevent the accession to the French throne of a man not only opposed to him in religion, but also an hereditary foe to the Spanish house. Henceforth, to the end of his reign, Philip's energies were directed to the repression of Henry of Navarre. But it was now England's turn to assume an attitude of aggression against Spain. The spirit of naval adventure, which had already grown high in England, received fresh vigor from the results of the Armada fight. 
hostility to Spain became a passion in adventurous minds, and any plan for an attack upon the Spaniards was received with enthusiasm. Early in 1589, an expedition against Spain was sent out under the command of Sir John Norris and Sir Francis Drake. Don Antonio, the pretender to the crown of Portugal, accompanied them, for he hoped that his presence would stir the Portuguese to revolt against Philip. The fleet, consisting of some fifty vessels and fifteen thousand men, landed first at Coruna, where they burned the ships in the harbor and then proceeded to besiege the city. The lower town surrendered, but the upper town was too strongly fortified to be taken by storm. Moreover, a Spanish army of 15,000 men marched to the relief of the town. The English, 7,000 strong, met them about five miles from Coruna, and after a short but sharp encounter, repulsed and pursued them with great slaughter. These exploits were brilliant, but fruitless for the main object of the expedition, and Elizabeth was angry that Drake had not at once proceeded to Lisbon. At length, however, he passed on thither, being joined on his way by transports, with which came a noble volunteer, the young Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, then at the age of twenty-two. Essex was now Elizabeth's chief favorite, he had been commended to her by Leicester, who was afraid of the growing influence of Sir Walter Raleigh. After Leicester's death, which took place immediately after the repulse of the Armada, Essex held the chief place in the Queen's affections. But the ambitious youth of twenty-two found it hard to curb his high spirit within the narrow bounds required to pay court to a mistress who was approaching the age of sixty. He had longed to join the expedition, but had been prevented by the Queen's express commands to Drake and Norris to send him back from Plymouth. He had, however, managed, after all, to elude the royal vigilance and go forth upon his quest for martial glory. Norris landed in the middle of May at Peniche, about forty miles from Lisbon. Drake sailed up the Tagus to join him against Lisbon. But Norris found it hopeless to take Lisbon, his troops were suffering from sickness brought on by intemperance at Coruna. The Portuguese did not rally, as had been expected, round Don Antonio, whose name brought only a few unarmed peasants. The English had no cannon to batter the town. Norris marched back and joined Drake at Cascais at the mouth of the Tagus, where they took the fort and seized sixty vessels belonging to the Hansa towns that lay in the harbor laden with provisions. After some more pillage along the coast, the English returned home. The expedition had been a failure in its main object, and there had been great loss of life through sickness. Yet the English had shown how vulnerable Spain was, and had defeated a Spanish army on its own ground. The name of Spain was no longer a terror to the English mind. It was rather a symbol of everything that Protestant England condemned. A crusading spirit against Spain and the Inquisition was mingled with a desire for glory and a thirst for gain, and sent the English youth to seek adventures in irregular warfare. Private adventurers, merchants, and gentlemen all fitted up vessels for this fierce naval war, and the daring deeds of English seamen filled the Spaniards with surprise that soon gave way to alarm. The Spanish waters were no longer safe. 
In 1590, ten English merchantmen on their way home from Venice defeated twelve huge Spanish war galleys which had been sent against them in the Straits of Gibraltar. The merchant ships of England were more than a match for the warships of Spain. Spanish galleys and merchantmen alike were at the mercy of English privateers, which scoured the seas at their will. The noblest of these privateers was George Clifford, Earl of Cumberland, who strove by ventures at sea to repair his fortunes, which he had shattered by prodigality. He was renowned for knightly prowess in tournaments, and once, as he kneeled before the Queen to receive the prize, she dropped her glove, which he thenceforward wore as a favour encircled with diamonds. But in spite of this royal graciousness, he refused to borrow the Queen's ships for his expeditions, as he knew the thrifty Elizabeth would reckon hardly with him for any losses. The Queen, indeed, never failed to demand from these adventurers that their expeditions should be directly profitable to the royal coffers. When, in 1590, Hawkins made an unsuccessful voyage so that his prizes did not pay for the expenses, he made a humble apology to the Queen in which he said, Paul might plant, and Apollos might water, but it was God only that gave the increase. This fool, testily exclaimed Elizabeth, went out a soldier and has come home a divine. This temper of the Queen was reflected in all others who engaged in naval adventures. When the first fear of Spain had passed away, these expeditions took too exclusively the character of freebooting and lost their more definite political significance. The desire for gain outweighed with the younger generation of English seamen the desire of crippling Spain. There was, however, one man, Sir Walter Raleigh, who represented throughout his life the principle of statesmanlike opposition to Spain and its distant colonies. This principle he always urged in Parliament and brought forward fresh schemes of colonization and opposition to Spain. He it was who first colonized Virginia in 1584, though the settlement failed for want of proper management and proper support. In 1592, he penetrated to the Isthmus of Darien, but his plans were stopped by a message from the Queen ordering him to return. Elizabeth disgraced her favorite for having dared to marry secretly one of her maids of honor, Elizabeth Throgmorton. In 1595, he made an expedition to Guiana in search of El Dorado, the fabled land of gold. His persistent hostility to Spain made his death a peace offering, which the Pacific policy of James I did not hesitate to make. The temper of these English seamen may be illustrated by the conduct of Sir Richard Grenville. His one ship, the Revenge, faced a Spanish fleet of fifty vessels, nearly all of them twice as large as his own. From three o'clock in the afternoon till daybreak next morning did Grenville hold out against them all. Time after time a huge Spanish ship attempted to board him and was driven back. At last all his powder was spent, the pikes all broken, of his crew of a hundred men forty were killed and the rest all wounded. Grenville could fight no more, but he would not surrender. The Spaniards offered honorable terms, and Grenville was taken on board the Spanish admiral's ships, saying that they might do with his body what they list, for he esteemed it not. 
In a few hours he died amid the respectful cares of the Spanish nobles, saying, Here die I, Richard Grenville, with a joyful and a quiet mind, for that I have ended my life as a good soldier ought to do, who has fought for his country and his queen, for honor and religion. This was the spirit which opposition to Spain awoke in England, the spirit which beat back Philip and filled England with a strong and vigorous national life. Meanwhile, Philip's interest was fixed upon affairs in France. The death of Henry III had opened out a wide prospect for the aggrandizement of Spain. The League, in its fanatical attachment to Catholicism, had almost entirely lost the feeling of nationality. Its members looked to Philip as the head of the Catholic party in Europe. They proclaimed the Cardinal of Bourbon king under the title of Charles X but Philip was to be recognized as protector of France. Here was a prospect peculiarly suited to Philip's policy. France might be absorbed as a province in the Spanish monarchy, which would then be a great organization for the entire re-establishment of Catholicism throughout Europe. In opposition to the League, Henry of Navarre assumed the title of King Henry IV. He was, of course, supported by the Huguenots, but the Catholics, who had adhered to Henry III, were sorely perplexed. They did not wish to give up the hereditary rights of the monarchy, but they could not consent to see the monarchy severed from Catholicism. Henry IV gave them to understand that he was not obstinate in his adherence to Protestantism. He was willing to be further instructed. Henry was not a man of deep religious principle, he had been brought up by his mother as an Huguenot. After the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day, he had conformed to Catholicism and had lived a gay, careless life at court. When things were a little more favorable, he had again joined the Huguenot. So long as he was a prince of the blood, he thought he had a right to hold his own opinions and to enjoy his political rights at the same time. But now that the rights of the monarchy had descended to him, things were changed. His first duty, he conceived, was to save the French crown and again to unite the French nation. He looked upon religion with the eye of a statesman. If the principle of Catholicism were held by the French people to be a necessary element in the monarchy, he must not lightly set up against their wish the traditions of his early education. On this understanding, the greater part of the Catholic royalists still held by him but his chances seemed almost hopeless. Henry IV was, however, admirably fitted to fight a difficult game. Always good-natured, amiable and gay, he won men's hearts and inspired them with confidence. He was a brave and dashing soldier to whom generalship seemed almost an instinct. Under an air of reckless good humor and unthinking jollity, he hid a cool and calculating brain. While seeming to live for the moment, he never forgot the end which he had before him. He believed profoundly, with an almost religious fervor, in the justice of his cause. He was determined to succeed, and knew the importance of every small success in helping towards this end. He was, moreover, entirely free from pedantry, and was prepared to make any necessary sacrifice that could help his cause. He was soon supported by the popular opinion of Europe, for Philip's schemes awoke 
the profoundest alarm. The idea of the balance of power was beginning to prevail in European politics, and this idea demanded the existence of France as an independent power. Even Pope Sixtus V was not willing to see the triumph of Catholicism purchased at the price of establishing the absolute power of Spain in Europe. Philip represented a party which was more orthodox than the head of the church. Henry IV began his campaign in 1590 by besieging Dreux. The army of the League was led to its relief by the Duke of Mayenne, brother of the murdered Guise. The armies met in the plain of Ivry, where the royalists were victorious, mainly through the desperate valor of Henry himself, who at once advanced to the siege of Paris. The city was ill-prepared to stand the siege, and was almost reduced to starvation, when Alexander of Parma advanced to its relief with his army from the Netherlands. He was bitterly disappointed at being stopped in his plans for the subjugation of that country by Philip's orders to advance into France. For a while the Netherlands had time to gather together their strength, and France became the battlefield of opposition to Spain. Henry IV broke off the siege of Paris, and trusting to his cavalry, composed almost entirely of French nobles, wished to force Alexander of Parma into a battle. But Parma was a more experienced general than Henry. He outmaneuvered him and refused to fight, till the nobles of Henry's army grew weary of waiting, and his forces dispersed. Parma, having done his work of relieving Paris, retired to the Netherlands. The death of the titular Charles X during the siege increased the influence of Spain. The leaguers had no one whom they could set up as king against Henry IV. They could trust only to Spanish help. Their scheme was to confer the French kingdom on the Infanta Isabella, Philip's daughter by his third wife, Elizabeth, daughter of Henry II of France. Philip demanded that he should himself choose for her a husband who should at once be acknowledged as king of France. Meanwhile, France seemed likely to be again split up. Every province was fought for by two nobles, one on the side of the League, one for Henry IV. To help the League in Brittany, Philip sent a body of Spanish troops. The presence of the Spaniards on the coast opposite to England awoke the liveliest alarm in Elizabeth, and made her more ready to send troops to the help of Henry. At her urgent desire, Henry, in the winter of 1591, laid siege to Rouen, but when he seemed likely to take it, the experience of his last campaign was again repeated. Alexander of Parma marched to its relief. Henry was obliged to raise the siege of Rouen, and was again outgeneraled by Alexander in his attempts to cut off his retreat. The campaign of 1591 and 2 had been made useless to Henry IV by the military genius of Alexander Farnese. But in December 1592, Parma died at Arras, and Philip had no general whom he could set against Henry IV for the future. Moreover, the cause of the League was losing ground in France. The public opinion of Europe was beginning to tell, and the Republic of Venice had recognized Henry IV in spite of papal admonitions. The party of the League in France itself was no longer unanimous. The question of the marriage of the Infanta Isabella raised jealousies. Philip first proposed as her husband his cousin, the Archduke Ernest, 
brother of the Emperor Rudolf, but he was distasteful to the French as he might one day become Emperor. Next Philip seemed to favour Charles of Guise, son of the murdered Duke, but Mayenne was in no way desirous to see his nephew raised to power at his own expense. Since his brother's death, he had been regarded as the head of the League, and he was not prepared to resign that position to his nephew. Amid the difficulties which had now sprung up, the moderate party of the politicians was daily gathering strength against the fanatical leaguers. The Parliament of Paris sent an admonition to the Duke of Mayenne to prevent the crown from passing into the hands of a foreigner. The distance of Spain prevented it from sending efficient military help to the League. Henry IV drew nearer to the Catholics. He was prepared to change his religion for the purpose of securing his position as King of France. It was not, however, to the fierce Catholicism of the League that Henry IV could possibly go over. It was to the moderate religious views of the royalist clergy who were willing to grant toleration to the Huguenots as a condition of winning over the king to Catholicism. On July 23, 1593, Henry was solemnly received into the bosom of the church by the Archbishop of Bourges in the Church of Saint-Denis. He at once reaped the fruit of his conversion. Many who could never have deserted the League to join a heretic now came over to his side. The French national spirit revived and took him for its champion. In March 1594 the gates of Paris were opened to Henry, and before the end of the year the Duke of Mayenne had made terms with him. Henry had still many difficulties to face before he had made his position as King of France quite secure, but Philip's project of making France a dependency of the Spanish crown had failed, in spite of its apparent nearness to success. End of section 21